0: Welcome to the Trust Me Podcast. My name is Kevin Bryce Jackson. I'm a trust and estates attorney here in Southern California, and I practice exclusively in the area of trust and estates, including litigation, administration, and estate planning. I had the opportunity to speak with Ryan Sapanik and Kieran O'Sullivan, who are experienced trust and estate practitioners and the authors of a new article recently published in the Trust and Estates Quarterly entitled, When They Don't Clap for Anti-Slap. My discussion with Ryan and Kieran will be a multi-part series. First, we talk about anti-slap motions in general. Then we dive into their article and analyze the use of anti-slap motions in the trust and estate setting. And finally, we explore policy considerations and potential legislation surrounding anti-slap motions specifically to trust and estate managed. We also go over some practical strategies when bringing and or facing anti-slap motions in the probate court. So with that, let's get started with part one of the podcast. Ryan, Karen, welcome to the Trust Me podcast and thank you for being with us today. I'm really looking forward to this discussion, but first, why don't each of you take the opportunity to introduce yourselves, Ryan?
1: Thanks, Kevin. And and happy to be here with you all today. I am a senior wealth strategist at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. I've been there for about five months. Prior to that, I uh, was a trust and estate attorney at the firm Hartog Bear in Hand. I was with Hartog Bear in Hand for about 10 years, half of which I was a shareholder. In my new capacity as a senior wealth strategist, I help our clients with trust estate tax issues, whether they be disputes or transactional issues. And I work with our outside lawyers, such as Kevin and Kieran, on matters that our clients
0: need help with. So again, happy to be here. Perfect. Thank you. Karen, why don't you introduce yourself?
2: Hi, Kevin. Hi, Ryan. My name is Kieran O'Sullivan. I'm a trusts and estates litigator in San Francisco, uh, where I've practiced my entire legal career, uh, almost all of it in the trusts and estates field for 24 years or so. I represent beneficiaries, trustees, fiduciaries of all kinds in the whole range of disputes that arise in the context of the transfer of wealth on death, uh, represent charities as well. And I'm the current chair of the litigation subcommittee of what we call Texcom, the executive committee of the trust and estate section of the California Lawyers Association. It's great to be here too. I had a lot of fun working on this article and podcast with Ryan, who I must say knows a lot more about the subject than I do. He knows so much about it that he felt it a good idea to initiate a change in the law, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later as well, and the need for that, and why it's a good idea.
0: So, why don't we go ahead and get started? As I know the two of you are aware, an anti slap motion is actually filed in response to what California attorneys and the law calls a slap lawsuit, or a slap suit for short, and that acronym is S L A P P. So before getting into the details of an anti-SLAP motion, I wanna start out with the basics of a SLAP lawsuit. So Kiran, I'd like to start with you. What does the SLAP acronym stand for and what is a SLAP lawsuit?
2: SLAP itself stands for strategic lawsuit against public participation. A SLAP suit is really a lawsuit that is intentionally designed to prevent somebody from exercising their constitutional rights to participate in matters of public interest or to exercise their constitutional rights of petitioning and free speech generally. So that's what it is. Where it began to be abused and where that abuse was becoming prominent and noticed by legislators in the 80s and 90s was in the environmental litigation environmental groups versus developers groups context. It frequently occurred when some big development project was proposed that it was opposed by public interest groups such as environmental organizations, local neighborhood groups or historical preservation groups or the like and so they would go in and try to force the developer or other financial interests behind the development, to comply with environmental review that's required under CEQA or other federal and state environmental policies or local or state zoning ordinances. Let's face it, it's probably true that those local environmental organizations were using uh, any legal hook they could uh, hang their hat on to prevent the development, legal hook, I I hasten to add, and so the developers started to respond with typically defamation lawsuits against the public interest groups or individuals sometimes, asserting that their lawsuits were defaming them or slandering them or something like that. What the person filing the, the slap suit or the strategic lawsuit against public participation was trying to achieve was to silence the public interest participant, shall we say, by burying them with legal fees, inundating them with paperwork, discovery, and making it prohibitively expensive for them to continue exercising their rights of free speech and petition on a matter of public interest in trying to prevent the development. That was the paradigmatic example of a SLAP suit in the early days.
0: Thanks for giving us that example on what a SLAP lawsuit looks like. So to sum it up, what exactly would you say the plaintiff or in the probate court setting, the petitioner, is trying to achieve with a SLAP lawsuit?
2: They're trying to silence the defendant. The defendant is typically the environmental organization, the neighborhood group, the individual who is exercising his or her right to participate in a matter of public interest, like a zoning policy or what they see as an infringement of environmental laws or regulations. They're trying to silence them. Greater financial resources against a much smaller defendant. And it was proving to be very successful, this tactic. And it was becoming a major problem that the legislature recognized. Okay, so moving ahead,
0: in this hypothetical situation, the plaintiff or petitioner files the SLAP lawsuit. In response, the defendant or in, in the probate court setting, the respondent files an anti slap motion, also known as a special motion to strike. So, Kieran, I'm, I'm going to come back to you. Can you explain what an anti slap motion is in general and in relation to a slap lawsuit?
2: Certainly. Before I do, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to explain a little bit about how the device or procedure came into existence. In the early 90s, as I mentioned, the legislature recognized that slapsuits were becoming a problem. So they enacted Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16. And their statement of policy underlying that statute was as follows. The legislature finds and declares that there has been a disturbing increase in lawsuits, brought primarily to chill the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition for redress of grievances. The legislature finds and declares that it is in the public interest to encourage continued participation in matters of public significance and that this participation should not be chilled through abuse of the judicial process. To this end, this section shall be construed broadly. And then the legislature went on to provide for an expedited and early review of cases that could be characterized as slap suits and determine that before the slap suits, if they are found to be slap suits, are allowed to proceed, the plaintiff has to show a reasonable possibility of prevailing on the merits. This has given rise to what we call a two-prong analysis. The defendant, let's say I'm the environmental organization, I'm sued by big developer for defaming them or intentionally interfering with their prospective economic advantage to be obtained by developing this new housing scheme too near to the wetland or whatever, I have to establish that by filing my objections to that housing scheme, I am engaging in my rights of petition or free speech, that would establish that my rights of petition have been have been breached etc and the plaintiff the developer's lawsuit would be struck as a slap suit if in addition to establishing that I am being sued for engaging in protected activity I can also establish that their lawsuit has little to no merit so an anti-slap motion is the motion by which you bring this to the court's attention ccp 425.16 provides the standards by which such motions are reviewed, granted or denied, the time within which you must file them, uh, the evidence that can be provided by either party before the judge rules and when the hearing is to occur. Thanks for taking us through the analysis of how
0: the anti slap motions typically work or, or how they're decided. But just diving in a little bit more specifically, just for the listener's benefit, what type of acts does a, an anti-slap motion protect?
2: Well, in the statute itself, 425.16E specifies four types of activities that are protected. Broadly speaking, the only acts that are protected are acts in furtherance of a person's right of petition or free speech under the United States or California Constitution in connection with a public issue. But those are specifically specified in the statute to include, firstly, any written or oral statement made in writing before a a legislative, executive, or judicial proceeding, or any other official proceeding authorized by law. Second is any written or oral statement or writing made in connection with an issue under consideration or review by a legislative, executive, or judicial body. Any written or oral statement or writing made in a place open to the public or a public forum in connection with an issue of public interest or any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition or the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. And as I mentioned, pursuant to the policy undergirding this statute, that subsection e is to be construed broadly. So the court is directed to find that things are closely akin to those protective activities that are likely to be protected. But to give you a concrete example, going before your local city's zoning body and speaking in opposition to a development project would be the classic example, or submitting a writing before that zoning body, or similarly, as a neighborhood group, Filing my own lawsuit to stop the zoning project would be a written statement in connection with an issue under consideration by a judicial body. So those are the types of things that are protected. And the anti-SLAP statute itself has become very broad. It has been liberally construed to cover a lot of different things. And whereas once SLAP suits were the abusive litigation device, Now many have come to view anti-slap motions as being, in and of themselves, in certain contexts, abusive uh, litigation devices. And Ryan will be talking more about that later on.
0: As I understand it, as you've explained, it appears that the courts analyze the anti-slap motions as a two-pronged analysis. Under the first prong, the moving party shows that the complaint alleges protected speech or conduct and that it arises from that protected speech or conduct, right? Right. And then the second prong is that if the moving party makes the required showing in the first prong, the burden shifts to the party that brought the slap suit to, to demonstrate a probability of success on the merits of, of the claims. So that's exactly right. Okay, perfect. So that's the substantive analysis for an anti-slap motion. But I want to move away from that substantive discussion and go over to the procedural side of things. And so, Kieran, tell me, When must a party file an anti-slap motion? Take us through the procedure of filing an anti-slap motion and and what that looks like practically.
2: Uh, Well, that's in the statute as well. Everything's in four twenty-five-sixty. Simply put, Kevin, it has to be filed within 60 days of filing the complaint. And then the the hearing on the anti-slap motion is supposed to take place within 30 days of the filing of the motion. And the whole point behind this is the legislature has deemed it propitious to get rid of slap suits as early as possible before the defendant is buried in litigation costs and burdened in that way. It's an early determination of the merits of the case. That's why it's so powerful, because the plaintiff sort of has to do a preview of his case very early on in proceedings etc. But you know, Ryan's gonna talk about what happens when the motion is filed. But but to answer your question, Kevin, you must file it within sixty days and it must be heard within thirty days unless court docketing prevents that from happening and the court can make other arrangements in the appropriate circumstance. Perfect. Understood. Thank you,
0: Kieran. Now Ryan, I have a few questions for you relating to the time period after the filing of the anti-slap motion and after the court decides on the motion. So my first question is, what happens to the underlying case when an anti-slap motion is filed? Yeah, so Kevin, when an anti-slap motion is filed, upon
1: filing a notice of that motion, all discovery proceedings in the action are stayed. That's Code of Civil Procedure 425.16, subsection G. To Kieran's point, the anti slab motion is a really powerful tool because you can file it against your opponent and basically bring that pers- underlying proceeding to a standstill. And uh, that stay remains in effect until there's a notice of entry of order ruling on the anti slab motion. The court unnoticed motion and for good cause. May order that specified discovery be conducted notwithstanding the stay. But for all intents and purposes, the underlying case has been brought
0: to a standstill. So you mentioned that there's a stay until there's essentially a decision, a final ruling on the anti slap motion. And after the court renders its decision on the anti slap motion, in California, we have the American rule, which says everyone bears their own attorney's fees and costs. But in this particular scenario, are attorneys' fees and costs recoverable in relation to the anti slap motion? Yes. So the anti slap statute does not follow
1: the American rule. And this is one of the provisions of anti slap that really favors the anti slap movement. And let me tell you why. If the anti slap movement, the one who files the motion, succeeds and the court grants the motion, then that movement is automatically entitled to recover their attorney's fees and costs from the party opposing the motion. Now that's in contrast to the party who opposes the anti-slap motion. If they prevail in defeating that motion, they're not automatically entitled to their to recover their attorney's fees and costs from the movement. Instead, they recover their costs only if the court finds that the motion, the anti-slap motion, is either frivolous or was intended to cause unnecessary delay. And that's the language that you find in Code of Civil Procedure Section 128.5.
0: Understood. So it seems like the movement is automatically entitled to the attorney's fees and costs upon success. But the award of attorney's fees and costs to the non-movement is discretionary. That's right. Okay. All right. So what if, and this does happen, the losing party doesn't like the court's decision. Is there appellate relief available? And what is the proper procedure to seek that relief? In other words, is, is the ruling on the anti-slap motion appealable or is there some other appeal route the losing party can take?
1: Yes. By statute, Civil procedure, section 904.1, an order granting or denying an anti-slap motion is appealable. What happens, let's say you you file your anti-slap motion, and you lose, and you appeal it. So what happens when you appeal it? Well, when you appeal it, the trial court proceedings upon that order denying the anti-slap motion are stayed. And not only those trial court proceedings upon that order, but all matters embraced by that order or affected by that order are stayed pending the appeal. So again... It's a powerful tool because you could bring the underlying proceeding to essentially a standstill. The trial court may proceed upon any other matter in the action not affected by the order. But again, the power of this anti-slap motion is by bringing it, even if you lose, appeal
0: it and bring the underlying case to a standstill. It sounds like the anti-slap proceedings can sometimes take on the life of their own. Is there a concern over parties and practitioners actually abusing the anti-slap motion and statute. Yes, there is, Kevin. You
1: know, we began with the slap lawsuit and the concern over abuse of individuals by folks filing slap suits, and that was the reason why the anti-slap statute CCP 425.6 was enacted. And now what we have is Persons abusing the anti-slap statute, and I guess you could say that was inevitable because litigators like to push the envelope. But what we're seeing is an abuse of, of the anti-slap statute for the reason that if you bring the suit and you lose, well, first you bring the suit and you can stay the underlying proceedings, and if you lose, you can appeal and stay the underlying proceedings. Basically, what litigants are doing. A lot of litigants, certainly not all. A lot of litigants are doing is they're forcing their opponent to spend money
0: even when they file an anti-SLAP lawsuit that has minimal merit. It seems like the legislature initially, like you mentioned, initially enacted the anti-SLAP statutes to prevent plaintiffs from misusing SLAP suits. Now it appears that some defendants are misusing anti-SLAP motions. And so... Given this full circle moment, what has the legislature done to curb the abuse of the anti slap statutes, or what can it do? To uh, add one further thought to my prior comment, you
1: know, what a lot of folks are trying to achieve by fan- filing anti slap motions is to essentially establish leverage to negotiate a settlement by forcing your, your opponent to, to spend money and stay the underlying action. A lot of anti-slap motions are filed for uh, worthy causes and have merit, but we're seeing a rise in the number that are filed that that don't have merit. The legislature recognized the abuse of the anti-slap motions, and in 2003, so nearly 20 years ago, the legislature enacted Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.17, which identifies types of matters that are exempt from an anti slap motion, that an anti slap motion cannot be brought against. And the legislature in 2003, when they enacted CCP 425.17, said in that statute that there has been a disturbing abuse of Section 425.16, which has undermined the exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition for the redress of grievances. And, and I'm quoting here from 425.17. The legislature finds and declares it's in the public interest to encourage continued participation in matters of public significance. And that participation should not be chilled through abuse of section 425.16. Shortly thereafter, two years later, the California Supreme Court chimed in in the case Varian Medical Systems versus Delfino, 35 Cal 4th 180. And in that case, the California Supreme Court held that while an appeal from the denial of an anti slab motion automatically stays further trial court proceedings pursuant to statute, the Supreme Court said that trial courts should not hesitate to award attorney's fees and costs to prevailing plaintiffs if the special motion to strike is frivolous or is only intended to cause unnecessary delay. And the court added, hopefully, these measures will somehow reduce the risk of abuse. So you have a California Supreme Court adding on to the legislature talking about the abuse of the anti slap statute 425.16. Yeah,
0: so it seems the legislature and the court has recognized this abuse, and they're, they're at least moving forward to try and prevent it. Thank you for listening to part one of my discussion with Ryan and Kieran. Next, we will discuss anti slap motions and trust and estates matters, then end with a discussion on policy and potential legislation related to anti slaps, and go over some practical tips for dealing with anti slaps in the probate court. I'll see you next time on Trust Me.
1: Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estates section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, please go to calawyers.org, click on Sections. Trusts and Estates, and look for the Education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the trusts and estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to Trust Me.